Open up to Genesis 28. The title for our lesson today is The Ladder Lord. Ladder as in step ladder. L-A-D-D-E-R. And of course you know what that's going to be about. Jacob's Ladder Dream. Exactly. I suppose if you would ask most of the people out there in the world, especially non-Christians, whose life they would rather live if they had a choice just between two people. Would they rather live the life of Esau or the life of Jacob? Well, if they knew about those two men, most would choose the life of Esau. They would. Esau, the big red-headed, I don't know, maybe I'm picturing total, totally wrong. Maybe he was a little guy. <laughs> I do know he had red hair, but I, I kind of picture him as a burly, red-headed man of the earth, a natural man, you know, the macho kind of man. He wasn't interested at all in spiritual things, so he had no inner struggle between his old nature and his new nature between his will and God's will, because he had no new nature, so there was no inner struggle. Overall, his life was rather smooth, other than that occasion that we looked at last time of his self-centered screaming tears, screaming like a woman, I said in the notes, and then I got this, I got this email that said, I'm a sexist. (laughs) Really? So I wrote back and I said, you've never heard a Greek woman scream. (laughs) Oh, it was a friend of mine. Anyway, she was being funny. (laughs) But he he did scream uh, when he lost to Jacob the patriarchal blessing. Other than that, he didn't suffer for a lack of any material goods. His daddy was very wealthy, and even though he didn't get the firstborn inheritance, Jacob was gone for 20 years, and he was a rich man. We know from the rest of the account in Genesis 36, he was, he was very well to do. Also, he could, for the rest of his life, enjoy his fleshly um, appetite, his women, um, his hunting skills, he could eat all the pots of bean he you know he wanted <laughs> all his he could he could satisfy all of his appetites unlike jacob he didn't have to serve long hard years to obtain his wives and he did have 3 wives total because after he married those two hittite canaanite women he wanted to please his father so guess what he did he wasn't exactly the sharpest pencil in the pack He went and got an Ishmaelite woman. He got the daughter of Ishmael to be his third wife. Didn't, I don't think it pleased his father. Uh, But he didn't have to serve for his wives. He didn't have to suffer, suffer separation from his parents while they were still alive. And then he did father a long line of dukes. Can you believe the word duke is in the Bible? Genesis 36, his descendants were called dukes. It's really like chieftains. And he was the patriarch of the nation of Edom. So he had, he had a good life. In contrast, Jacob's life was very difficult. Not only because of his own ongoing struggle 
with his will, his self-will, and doing God's will, you know, his old man and his new man, he had that struggle within himself, but he also suffered, I don't know if you want to use that word, but he experienced divine chastening because whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Esau doesn't, you know, he doesn't get the divine chastening, does he? And also, guess what? He received the fiery darts of the evil one because if there was anyone that Satan wanted to destroy, it was Jacob because he was the one who would carry on the messianic line. Jacob left both his country, his family, his home because his brother planned to kill him. He never again saw his mother and they were close. Uh, 20 years later, we find when he does finally return to Canaan, he still feared and distrusted his brother Esau. He was deceived in marriage. We all know that. What a shock on his marriage night. It's hard to picture that, right? How could you know you? How could you not know? <laughs> Him covered in a veil, so he didn't know. But he was deceived on his marriage night after having worked seven <laughs> years. For the woman he loved, he experienced continual strife between the four mothers of his 12 sons and one daughter. That's to be expected, right? <laughs> yeah. well, two wives and two concubines, guaranteed trouble, definitely. He was degraded and humiliated by his devious father-in-law. He was brokenhearted when he lost the love of his life, Rachel, when she died in childbirth, giving birth to um, Benjamin. And the only daughter he had, as far as we know, was raped. Yeah, was raped. He had, oh my goodness, if you think you have problems with your children, did he have troubles with his children? That some of them were murderers? They wiped out everybody in a town? Everybody? I mean... He had big time issues. I don't think he was a very good father because he had lots of problems with his sons. Um, he grieved heavily for years over the supposed death of his favorite son. Now, he shouldn't have had a favorite, right? He, I mean, he, I guess he passed it. It just got that from his parents because they each had a favorite, so he had a favorite, and, and he thought that his favorite son was dead, and so he was in heavy grief over that for years and years, only then to discover <laughs> that it was all caused by the wicked deception of ten of his sons. Now, he had deceived his father, hadn't he? So you reap what you sow, and he was deceived by his sons. When Jacob was 130 years old, he said this. These are his own words. He said, few and evil. And the word evil is really difficult. So he's basically saying, few and difficult have the days of the years of my life been. That's in Genesis 47, verse 9. He did not have an easy life, did he? He did not. So if you ask the world, whose life would you rather have? They're going to pick Esau. Now, let me ask you, whose life would you rather have? Even with all the chastening and the trouble and Satan attacking you and Jacob, exactly. Because where is he today? With the Lord, yes. Have to look at the end picture, right? 
He knew the Lord. Esau was a co-conspirator with his father, Isaac, to secretly receive the blessing that both of them knew was rightly Jacob's. And after Esau was outmaneuvered by Rebecca, his mother and, and his brother, he was absolutely pitiful. I mean, you read that scene, and you, it's hard to imagine him as the big burly Esau because he's screaming like a woman <laughs> and crying like a baby and carrying on. I mean, it was, it was pit pitiful in his attempt to persuade his father to reverse the situation, which his, yay, spiritually awakened <laughs> father, finally, he had been in a spiritual stupor, I think, for years, but finally he was convicted, he was awake, and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't take back the blessing from Jacob that he had unintentionally given. And so Esau was hot to trot. Well, we, we learned that Isaac, Isaac um, learned his lesson, but at a great price. Now, he had division in his family before this Genesis 27 incident, didn't he? I mean, because he favored one son, his wife, and it doesn't seem like even the husband and wife had much communication going on there. So there was already division, but there was even greater after the, that experience, much greater division, and it would never be healed. The unity of that family would never be healed. Did you discuss in your group the most guilty? I bet some of you, a lot of you said Isaac, didn't you? As the father of the family, he would be most responsible. Some of you, however, said Esau, didn't you? Yeah, I figured you, somebody would. Because actually, in God's eyes, long term, he was the most guilty because he grew up in a wonderful family, and yet he, he did not accept the Lord. and He wasn't interested in spiritual things at all. He's, he never did turn to God. We know that from the New Testament. He never turned to the Lord in repentance and belief. And some people would be inclined to really sympathize with Esau to have empathy with him, but the Bible warns us, um, gives us a serious warning, uses Esau as a serious warning. The Bible doesn't tell us to empathize with him. The Bible warns us about living a life as his. In Hebrews, we are told not to miss the grace of God. Did he have an abundance of grace in his home? Yeah, it was dysfunctional, but look at who his grandfather was, Abraham. His father was Isaac. I mean, God poured grace on that family, and yet he still had no interest at all in the Lord, the, the promised Savior, spiritual things. So we're warned not to miss the grace of God. Like Esau, we are warned not to allow a root of bitterness to grow within us like Esau. He took comfort. What was his comfort? His comfort was in his plans to murder his own brother. Don't allow a root of bit bitterness to, to harbor in your heart because the, one, the only one it really hurts is who? You. It'll shorten your life for one thing. It'll make you bitter and you'll look bitter. You know, just get rid of it. It doesn't hurt the person you're bitter against a bit. It hurts you. We're also warned not to um, live sex sexually immoral lives. He was a fornicator, the author of Hebrews tells us. Also, we are warned to not be godless like Esau. So you see, this was written 
thousands of years after Esau. He, he did never repent. He did not learn from the Genesis 27 experience at all. He remained indifferent. His screams and his tears were those of, of selfish frustration, not of mournful repentance. And as I said, his hatred of uh, Jacob got to the point, heated to the point that his only comfort, that's sad, if your only comfort is in wanting to murder your own brother, that's pretty pitiful, isn't it? Pathetic. It's a common trait, however, and we know why he hated his brother. Look at verse 41 of 27. It says, and Esau hated Jacob. Why? Because of the blessing. It is a very common trait of non-believers to hate those God has blessed. Israel has been hated for this very reason. Do you know that? That's the reason Israel is hated. That's the reason for so much anti-Semitism, which is growing today. Now, the world would deny that. They'd say there's other reasons. But that is the bottom line reason. Because God, and he has the prerogative to choose whoever he wants, right? He's got sovereign God. He chose to, to develop the nation of Israel, probably because it's in the middle of the land masses of the world, to be his witnesses to the world of him. That's his prerogative. He chose them, and he blessed them, and he's, he's preserved them, and he's done many, many miracles in that people. Um, but, and that's why, of course, the world hates Israel, the Jewish people, because God chose them, God has blessed them, and who's behind all of that, of course? Satan. Satan. Absolutely. The Jewish people have been persecuted and murdered by the millions more than any other people simply because evil hates what God has blessed. And that is why you and I as Christians also are hated. And that's growing too, isn't it? Even in our country, which was founded upon the Judeo-Christian um, faith. And yet we're, um, we're hated and it's going to get worse. It, we shouldn't be surprised by it, should we? Not at all, because Jesus warned his followers when he was on earth. He said, you know, the servant isn't greater than the master. If they hated me, got news for you, they're going to hate you. And he said, I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. So don't be surprised by it. We knew it was coming. Well, of course, behind that hatred and murderous spirit is the evil one. He was... He was the influence behind the plan to give Jacob's blessing to Esau. So he even used Isaac, didn't he? He was the one. He wanted the blessing to go to Esau. Now, can you imagine if Esau was the next one in the lineage for the Messiah? That would be the end of that line because who had he married? Canaanite women? They weren't even from the, they weren't descendants of Shem. They were pagan worshipers. Uh, and then his third wife was an Ishmaelite. I mean, that would have been the end of the Messianic line. So he was, he was the one behind that. He was also, of course, the influence behind Esau's hatred of Jacob, just like he was the influence behind Cain killing his righteous brother Abel. It's always been his plan is to, you know, destroy the messianic line so that the Messiah couldn't get here. 
just as God had said he would get here through Israel, etc. So Jacob became the primary target of Satan's evil purposes. And at this point, Esau was his human tool. I think he was even the tool that Satan was using when they were in the womb and struggling in there. So at this point, Esau was Satan's dupe. Guess who's going to become the next dupe of Satan? Laban. You got it, Laban, Uncle Laban. Boy, does he take the cake. <laughs> so Isaac, so far, is the only one who learned from that experience of Genesis 27. Rebecca, Rebecca, his wife, she did not learn anything from that experience, at least immediately, as far as the record is concerned, because her behavior after her success um, in tricking Isaac to bless Jacob instead of Esau, her behavior remained unchanged, didn't it? Because when she, again, she was eavesdropping, apparently, when she heard about Esau's murderous intentions, she again deceived her husband. Instead of going to him like she should have in love and in truth and saying, you know, I know you really love Esau, I do too, but here's the truth. I heard him, he wants to murder Jacob. Instead of giving him the truth, see, they did have a communication problem. It's very important to have good communication between a husband and a wife, but they didn't. And instead of informing him of that, what did she do? She persuaded Isaac to send Jacob to Haran, to her people, in order to secure a non-Canaanite wife. It was her feigned excuse to get Jacob safely out of the hands of, of Esau. You know, because everybody's expecting Isaac to die at any moment, right? He was 137, I think, at that time. Pretty old and... Almost kind of senile, wasn't he? Sort of. Didn't you get that feeling? Well, the guy tricked everybody because he lived another 43 years. <laughs> Can you imagine what he was like at 180? Mm. <laughs> but I do believe that probably later on sometime Rebecca did repent. She was a true believer, and I think she probably did repent, uh, especially when just as she had feared in verse 45, she did lose both of her sons on the same day, didn't she? One she never would see again. She said it would just be a few days. You know, we'll just send him off to get a wife for a few days. Well, she never saw him again. And do you think she didn't lose her other son, Esau? Mm-hmm. I don't think they ever had a good relationship after that because she had been the mastermind behind the plot to rob him of the blessing. So now the stage is set for the next 20 years of Jacob's life, which would be two long decades in God's school of hard knocks. Now that's one school you don't want to enroll in. Tuition is even free, but you still don't want to enroll in it. And as I said, on his eventual return to Canaan, his mother was gone. But amazingly, Isaac was still alive. But here's the interesting thing. A lot, he was alive when he returned, but he's never mentioned again until his death. Isaac kind of blew it. So, and also, remember how we discussed last time? You know, it was like the Lord was saying, okay, I gave the death of Abraham, even though he kept living, and we got rid of Ishmael, even though he was still living. It was because the focus was turning from Abraham and Ishmael solely to Isaac. We have the same thing going on here. Isaac is not mentioned again until his death because it's like, all right, we're finished with the second patriarch of Israel. We're going to go on now to the third, which is Jacob. So the focus now is going to be on Jacob. 
And so he is supposed to go and find himself a wife. And during his 500-mile journey from Beersheba, remember that's where Abraham and Isaac were living when they went to Moriah for the sacrifice, the almost sacrifice of Isaac. They were living in Beersheba. Jacob is also living in Beersheba with his family. That's where he leaves from. So from there to Haran is 500 miles. Uh, I should have said um, Eliezer. He's the one who took that, remember, with his 10 camels, that 500-mile trip from Beersheba to Haran. Well, as he's traveling, we read, if you'll look now at chapter 28, verse 11, we read of Jacob coming upon a certain place to spend the night. When he gets there, then he takes of the stones of that place for his pillows. Poor guy. I guess he never heard of my pillow. <laughs> you know, I got, I got, every time I'd see that commercial, I'd say, I got to get one of those because they have neck problems every morning. I finally did get a my pillow. And it really is nice. I'm putting in a little commercial. It really is good. I like it. Maybe some of you got one and don't like it, but I like mine. All right, but this poor guy, I had to sleep on a stone for a pillow. (laughs) And then it says he laid down in that place. Do you notice? Look, place, place, place. Three times in verse 11, the place of Jacob's rest is mentioned. And if you go through the rest of the account um, that happens that night, you know, the, the dream, the rest of the chapter, there are three more references to the place that he spent that night. That's six total. Now, the Hebrew, in the Hebrew text, and if you're wondering what these strange words are up here, this is Hebrew, it explicitly indicates to us that this was not just some random place that he stopped for the night. The words, he came to a certain place, in Hebrew are translated, he came to the place. And it's vayifka ba makom. Vayifka ba makom. Now, if he only stopped randomly, it just, you know, it's the sun starting to go down, and so here I am, I'll sleep here, and the place had no significance, it would have not been ba makom, the place, it would have been by, bi makom. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right or not, but it isn't. It's the place. And the verb yifga, Yifka is the verb, came. It indicates in the Hebrew a predetermined encounter with someone or some place. So it was as though a divine magnet drew Jacob to a specific place. And he himself testified of that truth later on in his life. In Genesis 35, verse 3, He acknowledged that the Lord was with him in the way he went on that particular day. He was being drawn. He knew it was the Lord was drawing him to a specific place. Okay, so obviously the location of Jacob's famous ladder dream, because this is the place he has the dream, that place is significant to God. He wouldn't stress this so much in the Hebrew, the place, the place, the place, if it wasn't. Now, that specific place may have been in the land of Moriah. Remember what the word Moriah means? 
clear vision, basically clear vision. Um, because that was where 120, um, 160 years earlier, Abraham had his first encounter with the pre-incarnate Christ once he was in the land, once he had actually entered into Canaan. This was his first encounter with the Lord. Now, he had encounters with him when he was out of, you know, Ur of the Chaldees, and then in Haran when he delayed, but this is the first encounter within the promised land. And this is the time that Abra- I mean, that the Lord gave to Abraham the uh, promise of the land for his yet unborn descendants, his seed. And in appreciative worship, Abraham built his very first altar. It was in the land of Moriah, Genesis 12, verse 6. Then, that was 160 years earlier, then some 50 to 55 years after that was when Abraham received the Lord's shocking command that he was to take his only beloved son Isaac and go to the land of Moriah, Genesis 22, verse 2. And on the third day, remember, it took them three days to get from Beersheba to the land of Moriah. It was on the third day that Abraham saw the place, it tells us, Ba-Makrom. He saw the place of which God had told him. And we read how he lifted up his eyes and he saw Ba-Makrom, the place, from afar off. So there's two Ba-Makoms in that one verse. Now, how, I have a question. How would Abraham know the place God, had told, God told him to take Isaac to sacrifice him? How would he know the place and recognize the place when he saw it afar off unless he had already been there? Now, both we know his altar, first altar, was in the land of Moriah, and we know he was told to go to the land of Moriah. To the place. So I think the first altar and the altar of Isaac were in the same place. That's what the Lord seems to be hinting at here. Um, four times altogether, the place, Bamakom, is mentioned in Genesis 22. Four times. And before leaving that place, when he didn't actually have to go through with the sacrifice of his uh, son because the Lord provided a ram instead... Remember, he named that place. He gave that place a name. It was Jehovah Jireh, which means what? Yahweh himself will provide the lamb. My son, God, will provide himself the lamb. That's what he named that place. So we see Moriah was significant for Abraham, the first patriarch of Israel, because it was where He first met the Lord and built his first altar within the land. And because it was where he was victorious in the greatest test of his life. Because he was willing to sacrifice his son, believing the Lord would raise him from the dead. So it was significant to Abraham. Okay, Moriah was also significant in the life of Isaac, the second patriarch of Israel. Because it's where he became the supreme human figure type of Christ's sacrifice at Calvary, on Calvary. 
which is also Moriah, right? Mount Calvary, Mount Moriah, same place. And it did indeed. We know Calvary did become the place where Yahweh provided himself as the lamb, the sacrifice, the atonement for sin. Now, this is really interesting. I've been doing a lot of study online, and this is what gave me spiritual heartburn the last couple of weeks, is that the Jewish people, a Jewish tradition, Jewish tradition, Jewish rabbis, they state that Moriah was additionally significant in the life of Israel's third patriarch, Jacob. They, it is declared by not only ancient Jewish sages and rabbis, but even modern-day rabbis, that the place, Ba-Makom, of Jacob's latter dream was in the same land or mount, Moriah. Now, does that kind of surprise you? It surprised me. <laughs> uh, same place as Abraham's first altar, same place where he took Isaac to sacrifice him. And the Talmud, which is commentary on Jewish law and customs and on the Torah, the Talmud actually identifies the place of Jacob's latter dream as Mount Moriah. And then I thought, wow, I never, I never knew that. And I looked at my King James Bible that is falling apart that I've had for years and years and years. And guess what my footnote says about the latter dream? Mount Moriah. There it is, right there in my own... <laughs> Now, so it is feasible. Now, some of you might tend to argue with that because there is a place named Bethel, which is where what he named it. But I give you some, I've already sent out the notes. Did anybody get it yet this morning? Maybe Louise is not home, maybe. <laughs> I sent it last night. Anyhow, um, it's very possible if you think about it because he left the same place, Beersheba, as Abraham and Isaac did. It's very possible that the dream, his dream took place on the third night third night of his journey. Now, if you look at a map to go from Beersheba up to Haran, you do pass through the land of Moriah, and we know it took them three days to get to that place. So this could have been the third night for Jacob. And as we found that Abraham gave Ba-Makom, that place, a name, Jehovah-Jireh, so does Jacob give that place a name. Actually, he gives the place two names. He calls it Bethel, Bethel, which means house of God, and he calls it the gate of heaven. And the Jews claim that both of those names prophesied of the future location of their temple, of the temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Okay, let's go back to the narrative. Putting one's head on a stone symbolizes the pain that sin brings to man. You know, the way of the transgressor is soft, hard, like a stone, like sleeping on a rock. <laughs> I think that Jacob's most painful anguish was over his status with the Lord, his, his position now with the Lord. Yes, and he's, he's thinking. As he's walking, he's thinking, and he stops for the night, and he can't get it out of his mind. He's, you know, pondering everything that's just happened. His father, Isaac, had retained the blessing, the firstborn blessing, Right? 
He, he didn't switch it and give it back to Esau. He, he kept it for Jacob. But what did the Lord think about all that? I'm sure this is what's going on in his mind. Had he disqualified himself from the messianic line because of his deception, which, remember, included bringing God into his lies? That was the worst lie, by the way, I believe. When you bring God in, I mean, which is worse, to say, I swear I did it, or to say, I swear in the name of God that I did it. And you, then you're bringing, and you didn't do it. Okay, so it's a lie. That's, that's worse. Um, he might have been thinking, you know, by doing wrong to gain the covenant blessing, had he actually brought a curse upon himself. Now, a wiser Jacob, an older, wiser Jacob, 20 years later, testified about the night of that God-given dream. And he told his family, this is 20 years later, he has now, you know, four wives and he's got all these kids. And he tells them that he's going to return to Bamakom, that same place, and he's going to make an altar. He didn't have time on his trip. He just put up a pill, you know, one stone. But he's going to go back and he's going to make an altar to God. And then he said this, who answered me in the day of my distress. That was the day of Jacob's distress. <laughs> They're going to have another time of distress too. Last seven years, tribulation. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. But he confesses that that night that he had the latter dream, he was in distress. So we also learn from that confession that the latter dream that he was that he was given was God's answer to Jacob's prayer. He was in distress, but he did the right thing. He called out to God. The night that night on the cold hard ground was not only a time of distressing darkness spiritually for Jacob, but it was also distressingly dark for him physically. Well, the sun had gone down, so it was really dark, but Previous to his journey, he may not ever have really ventured far from his parents or the security of their great wealth or the protection of their many servants. He wasn't, you know, like Esau going out on these long adventures, cunning. He was a cunning hunter. You know, he wasn't like that. He was more of a homebody. So he probably had never ventured out. I don't think he mingled a lot with the Canaanites, which obviously Esau had done based on the wives he picked. You know, so... This is, this is all kind of scary for him, even though he's 77 years old. Still doesn't have a wife. <laughs> His father kind of failed there, didn't he? Father failed big time there. He let Esau marry these, you know, maybe he should have made marriage arrangements when some boys were younger, like only 40. <laughs> but if he, if, when he looked back, as far as he knew, you know, Esau could be behind him. Why do you think his parents sent him out with hardly anything? Do you know Jacob only talks about having a staff? And a, we know he had a cruise of oil because he poured it on his stone when he dedicated it to the Lord. But he didn't have cam 10 camels. He didn't have all kinds of gold and silver because we know that. Because when he gets to Haran, he has nothing to offer for the hand of Rebecca, uh, Rachel in marriage except his labor. Why do you think his parents, they were very wealthy. Why do you think they sent him out with nothing except a staff and a few little things, supplies? Hmm? that's exactly what i think i think the same thing if he had gone with all these camels and everything he'd be a um, prime target for robbers thieves you know whatever huh and esau exactly because he could follow a lot of camel prints in the sand 
Um, anyway, so if he looked back, he, he might wonder if Esau's around the next bend or hiding behind some rock, you know, ready to kill him. He didn't know. And when he looked ahead, he was apprehensive probably about the future because he had never been outside of Canaan. He'd never been to Haran. He didn't know how his uncle Laban would receive him when he arrived without a whole lot of gold and silver. Remember Laban? He kind of liked the gold and silver that Eliezer had given to his sister. He didn't know how long he would be gone. He didn't know how long it would take him to find a wife. He didn't know how long it would take for Esau to cool from his murderous hatred of him. He was literally and figuratively between a rock and a hard place. (laughs) And what he didn't realize is that despite his failings, the Lord and his ministering angels were with him every step of the way. And they would still be with him when he left the land. Pagan peoples used to believe that each people group, each nation had their own God. And so if you left your nation, your God no longer protected you. You were under some other God. And if you didn't worship him, you were sort of on your own. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of the universe, right? So he finds out in this dream that no matter... Even when he's exiled from the land, the Lord is still with him everywhere he goes. So after his distress call to the Lord, his prayer, Jacob fell asleep. Although he literally hit rock bottom. I can't help but use all these little cliches. (laughs) Even though he hit rock bottom, God gave him tremendous blessing in a dream that that Jacob would never forget and we all know about it isn't it amazing he's many many thousands of years later we know about this dream it was his burning bush experience you could say <clears throat> and in the dream Jacob 77 years old heard from the Lord himself for the first time before this he's only been going on his mother's word when he was still in the womb Now he hears from the Lord directly. The pre-incarnate Christ, he's the one who speaks to him, not only spoke to him, but he, this is a study of Old Testament Christology, okay? So the Lord typologically represented himself to Jacob by the central feature of, of the dream, which was the ladder. See, the ladder is a picture in type, just like the ark is a picture of Christ, and the brazen serpent lifted up in the the wilderness is a picture of Christ. The ladder, that's why I call the lesson the ladder Lord. He's the Lord of the ladder, and the ladder is the Lord. (laughs) He pictures himself to Jacob by the ladder. Now, it was no ordinary ladder. Because although it was set up on earth, you know, the bottom was on the earth like all ladders, uh, yet its, its length was unique. Its length was very unique. Did it reach to the top of this building? Empire building? Taller. Where did it go? All the way to heaven. That's pretty unique, isn't it? <laughs> That's pretty unique. And it was also unique because on it, were angels, the angels of God, ascending and descending on the ladder, up and down, up and down the ladder. Now, the Hebrew word for ladder is sulam. I don't know if you can see it down there. Oh, I spelled it wrong. It should be 
No, that's it. S-U-L-L-A-M. Ladder. Sulam. But it only appears, and this is interesting, we'll talk about this later, only appears one time in all the Bible. That word, one ladder. Get it? One ladder in all the Bible. But because of that, we cannot do a comparative word study to find out <coughs> if it speaks of a step ladder, a stairway, a rung ladder, a ramp ladder. We can't find out. But you know what? Who cares? doesn't really matter. It went from earth to heaven, and it was not speaking about a literal ladder to heaven. You know, there is, you can, it's like searching for, when I was a little kid, I all, every time there was a rainbow, I took off. I was going to find that pot of gold. <laughs> well, you could search the whole world, and there's not literally a ladder that will take you up to heaven. Duh. And the angels don't need to transport themselves between earth and heaven by a physical, literal ladder, do they? So it's symbolic. It's symbolic, and it's typological. So while marveling in the dream, okay, he's sleeping, and in his sleep, he's marveling as he's beholding this ladder, this amazing angel-filled ladder. He looks up. You know, sometimes we have to get flat on our back with a hard stone pillow <laughs> before we finally look up, right? So finally, he, he looks up, and what he beholds there is, he says, behold, four times. <laughs> behold the ladder. Behold the Lord. You know, behold the angels. He's just amazed inside this dream. But he looks up, and he sees the Lord standing above the ladder in heaven. Heaven's open, and there's the Lord at the top of the ladder. And as he looks, the Lord speaks to him. And I'm sure Jacob is expecting to hear words of rebuke. But guess what? Not a single word of rebuke is spoken by the Lord of the ladder. Instead, he does something kind of cute, really, I think. He introduces himself. Now, Jacob had never met him before. So he introduces himself to Jacob. And he says, verse 13, I am. I like that. Starts out with those two words. I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Jacob. Um, Isaac, excuse me. <coughs> now the words thy father immediately place Jacob as the third in the chosen line of Israel's patriarchs. He's telling him, you're going to be the next one. Now, that's what he was fearing. You know, he was fearing that maybe he had lost that privilege because of his sin. And then the Lord proceeded immediately after the introduction. He proceeded to share with Jacob the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. He was the next recipient of the Messianic line. God's grace is just amazing, isn't it? <clears throat> Even though his, you know, through his mother, he had learned that he was the chosen one, that the elder would serve the younger. He had heard that all of his life, but I'm sure he longed to hear it directly from the Lord himself. And especially now, you know, because of his deception and his lies, he would be hoping, oh, I wonder if I'm still the chosen one or is it going to go back to Esau? Am I going to perish on the way? And that's what he's longing to hear. I don't know what he prayed, but that's exactly what he heard, isn't it? Yep. No matter what you did, you're still the chosen one. At 77 years of age, he received God's blessings, the same ones that had been given to his grandfather and to his father. Well, not only did the dream indicate God's unconditional 
care for and choice of Jacob regarding the messianic line, it also revealed angelic involvement in the work of God on earth. Are angels involved in God's work in his redemptive program here on earth? Yes, they are. They're also involved, or they were involved very much in the life of of Jesus when he was here on earth. He's the latter, remember? So there's a lot of um, symbolism going on about the angels' work. They're also ministering spirits for us, aren't they? As they were for Jacob. They minister to us, ministering spirits. Uh, I put an extra little page in your notes all about the angels, okay? So I don't want to get into that and take up the time right now. But um, he learned a little bit more about angelic involvement. He may not have understood all of it. But most significantly, it showed, the dream showed, God's provision of a ladder or a bridge or a stairway, whatever you want to call it, between heaven and earth. You know, every attempt of men to build stairways to heaven, such as, who you can think of what? Exactly, such as the Tower of Babel. They all, because they're man-made, where do they originate? Where do they put the bottom of the ladder, so to speak? On the earth. Okay, they all originate on the earth. Therefore, they always, uh, I don't care what religion, what cult, what uh, philosophy, what idea it is, they always, always fall far short of connecting with heaven. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. Who can ever, man-made on the earth, build their way? I mean, God showed how futile that was. He laughed at the project of of Babel. It's just ridiculous. So they always fall far short. God's stairway, however, his ladder originated with him. And he has no limitations. So his ladder began in heaven, came down to earth. His ladder did not fall short of making its way down to earth. No matter how much Satan tried to prevent completion of that divine plan. He kept trying to cut the ladder, cut the ladder, cut the ladder, didn't he? To prevent Christ, the Messiah, from coming to earth. But he could never succeed. Never. God is superior to Satan. He is Satan's creator. Now, although Jacob, you know, poor Jacob, he didn't understand the fullness of the dream's significance. But he would have, I think, gotten the main message of the dream that there is divine provision for access to heaven. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide himself. The lamb for the sacrifice. God will provide himself the ladder to heaven. I think he also would have understood through this dream God's care for him. Because, uh, and even at that dark hour of his life. Because he was being divinely watched over and ministered to by God's holy angels. Even though the prophetic picture of the ladder as the Lord himself was not something that I think Jacob fully grasped. Do you? Do you think he understood, oh, the ladder is the coming promised seed of the woman? 
I don't, I don't know what he, I don't think he got that. He knew there would be provision. But that picture would be explained one day. It would be explained. Now remember we had another question in this study a little while ago. When Isaac noticed Abraham had the wood in one hand and the fire. No, actually, the wood was on his back, wasn't it? (laughs) He said, here's the wood, you know, there's the fire. But what was his question? Where is the lamb? And it took 2,000 years for that question to be answered. And who answered it? No. Remember John the Baptist when he saw Jesus walking toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. So we had that question, where is the Lamb? Now we have another question, who is the ladder? Where is the Lamb? Who is the ladder? Again, it took 2,000 years for that question to be unveiled and revealed. And the one who revealed it was the Lord himself. In fact, it was one of the first picture types of himself that he did unveil. It's in John chapter 1, if you want to flip over there. John chapter 1, same place where John the Baptist said who the lamb was. Jesus reveals himself to be the ladder. The ladder pictured himself. And the one he revealed it to, does anyone want to guess who is the person that Jesus revealed himself to be the ladder to? Shouldn't end in a preposition, but who's the person? Anybody want to guess? Okay, I'll tell you then. It was an, a man, an Israelite, in whom there was absolutely no guile, deceit. 2,000 years from the time of Jacob's latter dream, there was a devout Jew named Nathaniel. And we learn from the account of him in John chapter 1 that on the day he met Jesus, and he became one of the twelve, that he had spent time earlier that day under a fig tree. John 1, 48. And from the rest of the narrative, it seems that when he was under that fig tree, he was meditating on Jacob's dream of the ladder. Maybe he was wondering how and when the ladder of the dream would be provided so that sinful men could enter into the presence of holy God in heaven. Perhaps he was contemplating the spiritual connection of the ladder with the promised Messiah. Maybe he was thinking about who is the ladder, not only how and when will it be provided, but who is the ladder. After all, all those who were believers in Israel were anticipating the soon coming of the Messiah because John the Baptist was the forerunner and he was proclaiming repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, uh, you know, this guy was a, a believer in God. He was a devout Jew. Now, whether he was thinking along that line or not, his friend Philip knew him, knew Nathaniel, to be a deeply spiritual man. Like himself, Philip knew that Nathaniel was longing for the Messiah. So he was the first person Philip sought after he himself believed. After Philip believed, he had met Jesus first, and he believed, he says this, that Jesus of Nazareth was the one of whom Moses and the prophets had, had written. 
That's in verses 43 to 45. Isn't that what we're studying about? That Jesus is the one about whom Moses and the prophets had written. Philip recognized that and he believed on Jesus. First person he goes to seek to, to share that news with is Nathaniel. And he tells him. And Nathaniel's first reaction, he's skeptical about this. <clears throat> and so he's the one who asked the question, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth wasn't exactly a good town. I don't want to get into that, but... <clears throat> Uh, so Philip wisely, Philip did not try to debate. He didn't try to argue. He very wisely, this is a good witnessing technique. Uh, you're inviting me to a Bible study? I don't know. Well, here's what you say. Come and see. That's all he did. He said, come and see. Come and see for yourself. So who can turn that down? Okay, I'll come and see. And so Nathaniel goes um, to see if indeed any good thing can come out of Nazareth. Well, as they're approaching, Jesus sees him and he says this. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. Now, guile speaks of deceit. Almost same thing, synonymous. His statement, that statement would immediately bring thoughts of Jacob, whose name at that time and still today was was synonymous with deceit or guile because of the early years of his life. His name even means deceit. Uh, and Jesus knew, of course, he's omniscient God. He knew Nathaniel inside out, didn't he? He knew him before he was even born. And he knew his character. He knew that he was an openly honest and sincere man who did not mislead people he spoke his mind, didn't he? We just saw that. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He spoke what he thought, and he didn't try to pretend to be somebody else. He was without any guile. And his, his, uh, Nathaniel's reaction to the Lord's comment was genuine surprise. He basically said in verse 48, how do you know me? How do you know me? You've never met me before. He's acknowledging that the assessment was correct. Now, that wasn't a conceited thing. He just knew himself. He knew that he, he was like that. He, didn't, he wasn't a hypocrite. He didn't try to deceive people. So he's wondering, how can this man, Jesus, know me when only the Lord can search the heart? Then, because Nathaniel might begin to suspect that perhaps Philip had already told Jesus about him and about his character, Jesus took another step. He said <clears throat> that he had seen Nathaniel when he was under that fig tree, well, earlier that morning, he was all alone under that fig tree. There was nobody else around. And he was traveling with Philip when they got to Jesus, so Philip couldn't have quick told him, oh, I found him under the fig tree. I don't think he was still under the fig tree when Philip went and got him. But anyway, Nathaniel knew nobody else saw him under that fig tree. So, he's saying, you know, here's this man from Nazareth. No one but God could know his character without having already met him. And, and how could he know his location without having been there with him? But not only did he have those two things to go on, something else. There was something else going on here that only Nathaniel knew about. Okay, Jesus had also revealed to him that he knew what he had meditated on when he was under that fig tree. And the clue was given to Nathaniel by Jesus when he described his character 
as an Israelite in whom is no guile. You know, Jesus only used that word Israelite once. Whose name was changed Israel? Jacob. <clears throat> and he only used the word guile once in his whole, you know, the whole written record. So he's saying, here's an Israelite in whom is no guile. He could have used other words to describe Nathaniel. He could have said, oh, a man of great integrity. He could have said, here comes a Jew of honorable character or any, you know, anything like that. But he purposely used the one word that would cause a scripturally knowledgeable Jew to think of Jacob. And Nathaniel understood that because he knew what he was thinking about when he was under that fig tree. So understanding the significance, Nathaniel becomes the first one to ever call Jesus the son of God. Do you know that? First one, other than Satan. But Nathaniel became the first one to call Jesus, the first man. He says, Rabbi, thou art the son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. Just two statements from the lips of Jesus, and he, he recognized that. That's amazing, isn't it? When he had just said, can any good thing come out of Israel? And he's saying, the son of God? <laughs> King of, and you notice that Jesus doesn't deny. He said, oh, no, you've carried it too far. He even went further than Philip. Philip just said, he's the one, you know, that the Moses and the prophets. So in other words, Philip might just believe, here's the Messiah, a man, the Messiah, a man like unto Moses. But Nathaniel goes all the way to the son of God. And with that confession, here it comes. Jesus revealed himself, identified himself as the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. He said, look at this, it's in verse 51. Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And would Nathaniel? Oh, yeah. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven opened. Who else saw heaven opened? Jacob. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the ladder. Uh, upon the Son of Man. See, he was saying, I am the ladder. You'll see those angels on me, the son of man. The son of man was his favorite term for himself. It was a humble term because he was identifying himself with man. It was also a messianic term. Daniel, everybody knew he was claiming to be the Messiah. So think of that, all these things, son of man, son of God, king of Israel, all here in just this little bit. He said he would uh, <coughs> display greater things than just revealing his omniscient power, his all-knowing power. He would display his omnipotent power, all-powerful power. <laughs> and he would open heaven's gate. Now, Nathaniel was seeing, you see, right then, he was seeing in real time what Jacob only saw in prophetic typology, a dream. He was asleep. He saw, I had a vision when he was sleeping. It's called a, a dream. He was right then, Nathaniel is looking straight into the face of the one who was the real ladder to glory. And he would also later watch, three years later or so, he would watch with the other disciples, the resurrected Christ ascend to heaven, wouldn't he? He would be there. <coughs> he was beholding the one who would open the way for Jacob and all of the other Old Testament saints Abraham, Isaac, you know, they weren't in heaven at this time. 
there in the paradise section of Hades. Jesus would open the gate to heaven for all the Old Testament saints, for Nathaniel, and for all the New Testament saints. And he was looking into that one's face. He would later hear Jesus proclaim to be the door, right? And the way. And he just heard him proclaim to be the latter. But he would even say, put all three of those into one statement when he said, <clears throat> he that entereth not by the door, but tries to climb up some other way. You see, you have the door, the ladder, and the way. All three in one statement. Is anyone who tries to do that any other way is a robber, a thief. No mention of the latter because he substituted the latter with himself, the son of man. Well, shortly after his conversation with Nathaniel, he had a conversation with a Pharisee who had wisely, even though under cover of night, he came to Jesus seeking answers to life's ultimate questions. What was his name? <laughs> Nicodemus. And to Nicodemus... In yet another reference to himself as Jacob's ladder, Jesus said to Nicodemus, No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man. That's again the ladder. Okay? So he unveiled himself to Nathaniel and then to Nicodemus as being the ladder. He is the bridge. Jesus is the bridge who connects the otherwise impossible, impassable gulf between earth and heaven. Sin shut the door, right? Sin shut the door to heaven. But he removed the sin barrier by his death and his resurrection. I have a church near to where I live. It's called Summer Hill Baptist Church. I pass that church a thousand times a month, I'm sure, because I, anywhere I go, I have to pass that church. And it has a marquee out front. And this week, the marquee says this. Now, I lengthened it, but here's the gist of it, okay? What a mighty carpenter Jesus is with only two wooden beams he built a bridge to heaven. Wow, isn't that true? As pictured, now I want you to get this. As pictured, but how many arcs of safety were there from judgment, the flood judgment? How many arcs? One arc. How many doors to that arc? One door to the arc. There is only one ladder, one sulam mentioned in all the Bible, one time. There is only one gate. Do you know when Nicodemus, um, you know, what's his name? Jacob. When Jacob named this place, Bamakom, he named it the gate of heaven. That's the only time you find that in the Bible, that expression, the gate of heaven. Only one gate to heaven. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He himself said, I am the way, the truth and the life no man cometh unto the father but by me is it pretty clear that there's only one way to heaven one ladder provided for us one mediator one ark of safety one door etc is that obvious if you believe the bible do you believe it that there's only one way to heaven do you know how many churches are teaching there are alternate ladders to heaven 
If you're in a church, let me just say this, and I'm going to just really be blunt. If you're in a church that teaches that, ah, always lead to heaven, always, you know, those people over in those countries are nice people. Yeah, they are. I'm watching a Turkish TV series, and the people are just like us. They're really nice. I mean, they're even nicer because they don't cuss, they don't drink, they don't, you know, they're just really good people. Um, and you can't help but like them. But I am sorry, they're on the wrong road. They believe in Allah. Allah is not the same God as God, Jehovah God, Jesus Christ. No. There aren't other ways to heaven. And if you're in a church where your pastor, your priest, your whatever you call him, reverend, teaches there are other ways, get out of that church because it's not the truth. And this is too serious of a matter to compromise on. You know, don't call yourself a Christian if you believe Jesus isn't the only way because he claimed to be the only way. And the Bible throughout shows he's the only way. Okay, did I get to preaching? Yes, I did. <laughs> well, after identifying himself, the Lord then spoke the covenant, four covenant blessings, I'm out of time, but he gives him four covenant blessings, okay, that, you know, about the property, the land would be his. Oh, that's very important. Who does he promise the land to? Jacob and his descendants, okay? Did he promise the land to Esau? No, no, no. It doesn't belong to the Palestinians, Esau's descendants. God promised the land to the descendants of Jacob. Clear. It's clear for those who believe the scripture. And then he promises him many descendants. Uh, he tells him he's going to be um, the one who will bring the Savior, who will bless all the families of the earth. And then he promises him other things like his continual protection. Now, remember, Jacob is a picture of Israel. So he's telling him, even when you're exiled from the land because of your sin, I will protect you. I will preserve you. You won't be killed by the hands of Esau. You won't be eaten up by some wild roaring lion. I will protect you. I will preserve you. And then he also promises he will return. Look at verse 15. He says to Jacob, I will bring thee again into this land. You know what that's a promise of? What we saw in 1948. I will bring, and we saw it after Babylon. You know, every time they're carried out of the land, it's because of sin, disobedience. They were carried out by Babylon, right? Because they turned to other gods. They were carried out, distributed when Rome was allowed to come in and, um, and de de destroy Jerusalem because they, they rejected their own Messiah. And just like Jacob, they're leaving the land because of sin. But he promises, I'll return you. I will bring you back to the land. Um, let me go on to the, the um, well, one thing we know is when he woke up from that dream, he, he had a more positive attitude now. He wasn't in his deep, dark day of distress. He left that place with a lighter step. Next time he encounters the Lord, he's going to leave with a limping step. <laughs> But he's got a more positive. He knows he's not going to kill, get killed. He knows he's going to find a wife. Because he's going to have descendants like the dust of the earth. So he's got a, you know, he's happy now. But he has a new fear. You know, before he went to sleep, he feared his circumstances behind him, before him. Now he has a fear of that place. Look at what he said in verse 16. When he wakes up, he says, surely the Lord is in this place, Ba Makom. And I knew it not. 
And then we're told he was afraid. And he said, how dreadful is this place, Bamakom. The word dreadful is fearful, really fearful. So he's afraid and he's fearful, but guess what? It's a good fear. It's the fear that's the beginning of wisdom because now he has a fear of the Lord, a reverential awe. But it's really right now, it's focused on that place, isn't it? The place, the place, the place. He's utterly filled with awe for that place. He also said, this is none other than the house of God. Hmm. And this is the place of the gate of heaven. That statement right there in verse 17 anticipates the name Bethel that he would give to that place in verse 19. Now that is the first mention in the Bible of the house of God. Okay? The very first mention of the house of God. As I already told you, I think the gate of heaven is mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. That's the one place. So he went back to sleep after that because then it says he rose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had used for his pillow and he set it up for a pillar. So from a pillow to a pillar. (laughs) And he set it, it must have been long, and he set it up, uh, probably put some stones around it to keep it up, and it was to represent the ladder because it was pointing upward. You know, it was on the ground, but it was pointing upward toward heaven and it was, he consecrated it. He set it apart. He dedicated it by pouring. He had a little cruise of oil. And he poured the oil on the top of that pillar, that stone pillar. And that represented the Lord also who was at the top of the ladder. Now, we discussed how Jesus was the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. But we did not finish discussing the emphasis. And I'm, give me two more minutes and I'll be done. The emphasis on, on the place, Bamakom of the dream Abraham named that place what Jehovah Jireh the Lord will provide Yahweh provides himself as the sin sacrifice Jacob according to the Jews and even my King James Bible and a lot of other hints and clues in that same place gave it the names the house of God and the gate of heaven Surely the placement of the temple on Mount Moriah was in fulfillment of the prophecies that were given by Jacob in these names. Look at what Jacob says in the, in the last verse of this chapter. Look at verse 22. He makes a vow that he is going to return to Ba-Makom, that place, and he said, this is prophecy, He said that the pillar he had set up shall be what? God's house. Is that where the temple was set up? You know, on the day the temple was dedicated, Solomon gave a prayer. And in his prayer, twice he speaks of Ba-Makom, the place of this temple. Jesus was the house of God, the Bethel, right? The temple of God for 33 years. He was incarnate God. He is the one and only gate to heaven. He is the only ladder to heaven. Moriah, clear vision, was the very place on earth 
that he opened the gate to heaven and made the ladder to God possible because it is where he died, Calvary, and just right over there in the garden tomb where he rose from the dead. Then, 50 days after his resurrection, he ascended, the ladder himself ascended to heaven so that who could come down? Holy Spirit. Oil, the oil on top of the pillar, the Holy Spirit came down and filled the new temple of God in that very same location. Do you know where the church was born? In the temple courtyard, the place where Peter preached and thousands could hear him preach that day when they were all filled with the Spirit and they could speak in different languages and everybody was amazed. And how many were saved that day? Was it 3,000 or 5,000 saved that morning? And the church was born. It was there on Mount Moriah, that exact same place, the old temple and the new temple. You know, we are now, Bethel, we are the house of God today, aren't we? And very possibly there will be another fulfillment of Jacob's ladder and the words to Nathaniel and to Nicodemus during the millennial kingdom. How is that? Well, you know where Jesus is going to reign over the earth during the millennial kingdom for a thousand years? Where is he going to reign? Jerusalem, <clears throat> right? His throne is going to be in the, in the millennial temple there in Moriah. And yet there is a new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven adorned as a bride. Revelation 21, verse 2. A lot of Bible scholars say that the new Jerusalem, and that'll be our dwelling place because we'll be in resurrected glorified bodies and we'll live in the new Jerusalem, but they say that the new Jerusalem is going to come down and probably hover over the earthly Jerusalem. And there very well may be a literal stairway between the two. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> we will know one day, won't we? All right, that's it. Let's pray. Father, grant us, please grant each and every one of us clear vision, Mariah, clear vision, and open sky, even on this rainy day, because I'm speaking spiritually, to see your son, who is the heavenly ladder, who joins earth to heaven and brings heaven to earth. We ask that by your spirit, you would help us to see truths in your word and in you that we've never seen before. As I said, give us clear vision and spiritual heartburn. Help us not to be like Isaac in a spiritual slumber. Give us conviction, awakening, and excitement and passion about the times in which we are living. Cause us to see clearly the dream of Bethel as the reality of Jesus Christ, the one way to your eternal dwelling place that he alone has provided for us. And thank you that... As with Jacob and all the saints of Old Testament times, you have promised New Testament saints like ourselves to, to never leave us nor forsake us. As the Apostle Paul proclaimed, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature which includes ourselves and Satan is able to separate us from your love, which is in Christ Jesus, our wonderful, wonderful Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.